Thank you, Damon. Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 24, verses 19 through 27. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe that all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The word of the Lord. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Let's put this over here. So, um, first service uh, for our nine o'clock service this year, right? Well, this academic year, I guess. And um, I know that I've been talking with uh, Joe. He's been sharing that he's got like a, a plethora of teachers, so praise the Lord for that. Right, they're they're starting to kind of come out of the woodwork. Uh, Frank and the youth group, on the other hand, um, it's a different story. I, I think Frank was telling me that he has like a hundred kids in his one class or something. Uh, I mean, <laughs> now I'm exaggerating, but um, you know, I say all this just to let you know how important and appreciated uh, your work, your faithfulness is, and. Um, we're glad to be here um, this morning, right? So, um, over the past six weeks, uh, we've been going through a sermon series called The Reliability of the Bible, Why Should We Trust in the Bible. By the way, I'm coming, coming down with a cold, so hopefully my voice doesn't give out, but just uh, please be um, uh, empathetic, please. Um, <coughs> Today's message will conclude that series, Why Trust the Bible, but it's also going to be a launching pad into our next sermon series. Our next sermon series is evangelism, Uh, right? That's the E word, the dreaded E word that gets a lot of us kind of intimidated and, oh gosh, Um, how to share, I want you to think of evangelism this way, how to share the good news with our loved ones. I mean, everybody loves to tell people good news, right? Um, and so think of it that way. Um, our loved ones, our neighbors, and even our enemies. So the sermon today kind of acts as a linchpin between the reliability of Scripture. Why is it true? And then once we are equipped with that, you know, over the past six weeks and today, then it kind of leads us into, well, we need to go share this, right? Okay, so you see the logic, I hope. 
There are going to be three points. Point number one, it's kind of a mouthful, but uh, try to write it down if you can. The Bible contains fulfilled prophecies. That's the title of our sermon today, Prophecies Fulfilled. The Bible contains fulfilled prophecies that require a supernatural knowledge and oversight and just sheer power that humans don't have and not for lack of trying. So the Bible contains fulfilled prophecies that require a supernatural knowledge, perspective, oversight, and just sheer power that human beings don't have, uh, naturally don't have, and not for lack of trying. Number, point number two, the numerous fulfilled prophecies about the coming Messiah. Okay? So we're going to look at some of those prophecies. And then point number three, the implications all right, so the implications for us today uh, from all of these fulfilled prophecies about the Messiah, if these prophecies are indeed true and fulfilled, then what does that mean for your life and my life today and for the lives of the people around us? So our passage um, today, <clears throat> Luke 24, now just by the very nature of the, the topic today, fulfilled prophecies. There's no way that really I can stay in Luke chapter 24. Okay, I'm kind of using it um, in some ways that preachers would not really like, but just by the very nature of what we're trying to do today, all the different fulfilled prophecies in the Old Testament, um, I'm tying that all together here in Luke 24. So we're not going to really look deeply at Luke 24, but um, I want you to notice uh, at least this one very important thing. So in Luke 24, this is the resurrection. Okay, this is after the resurrection. And, which by the way was prophesied. And um, the disciples still are in doubt. They don't believe that he's actually resurrected. And, you know, who could blame them, right? Uh, no one else has resurrected like Jesus did, right? Um, he did revive people, uh, you know, like Jairus' daughter and Lazarus, but uh, to resurrect, that's a different kind of thing here. And so uh, some disciples, two of them are walking along a path on the road to this village named Emmaus, and then all of a sudden Jesus just appears, <laughs> and um, he draws near to them, and they have this conversation, and he's like, Hey, what are you two talking about? And two people are like, what else would we be talking about? There's this crucifixion of this holy man. Haven't you heard of him, Jesus? Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and then he's, he, he said that they were gonna, he was going to resurrect. And, you know, he did all these amazing things. And uh, now there's reports. There are reports that he, he resurrected. But he, we hoped that he was going to be the one to, to save Israel. Again, another prophecy that we'll get to. And moreover, it says in verse 22, some woman of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that Jesus was alive. And some of us, so they're reporting to Jesus, some of us actually went to the tomb, and indeed, we found it just as the woman had reported, it was empty. 
And in verse 25, Jesus says, Oh, foolish ones, slow of heart to believe. I wonder if he's talking to the disciples or if he's talking to us. Slow of heart to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. There we start getting into our topic today. Was it not necessary that the Christ, he's talking, referring to himself, should suffer these things and enter into his glory? In verse 27, this is kind of going to be the launching pad for the rest of the content of our message today. And Jesus says, and beginning, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. Now Moses, he lived maybe about, 2,000, almost 2,000 years before Jesus did, okay? Estimates vary, but about 1,600 to 1,800 years B.C. So they drew, uh, so beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Isaiah, Daniel, Micah, Zedekiah, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things, read those last two words with me, the things concerning Himself. So Jesus, when he's trying to help his followers understand his identity, where does Jesus go to? Jesus goes to the prophets. He goes to the scripture. He goes to the, what we know today as the Old Testament. Interesting, right? When he's trying to prove, demonstrate, that he is actually who he said he is, where does he go? He goes for evidence to what we know today as the Old Testament. So, point number one, the Bible contains fulfilled prophecies that require a supernatural knowledge and power that we humans aren't able to generate in and of ourselves. So let me start off today uh, this point number one with a very important question. It's a question that all Christians need to be able to address. Okay? Ready? So if you're, if you're a believer, if you identify yourself as a believer in Christ, ask yourself this question. How can you know that the Bible really is from God and not from people? Not from people's, you know, thoughts and inspirations. How can you know that the words in the Bible are actually from God? Prove it. Now, if someone were to ask you that question, I wonder if we would feel confident to be able to respond. Think about that. God, in 1 Peter 3, tells you and me that every believer should always be prepared, always be prepared to make a defense whenever someone asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. So, if you're a Christian, ask yourself, as your Lord, your Father instructs, do you feel that you are prepared to give a reason for the faith that is in you? Specifically today, because they could ask a whole bunch of questions, right? Why does God allow evil? Uh, why do people die? Why does God send people to hell? Those are all big and important and, uh, you know, um, valid uh, questions to ask, right? And we have answers to them. But another one of those questions is, well, how do you know that the words in this thing is actually from God? 
I think it's from people. Right? And so this is one of the reasons why, and this kind of touches on next week, right, and, and what we're going to talk about evangelism. When we think about sharing the gospel, when we share about, think about sharing uh, the good news, we get a little, uh, dare I say, intimidated, a little overwhelmed, thinking, well, I, would, I really do want to share the gospel, right? But what if they say, well, sure, that's what the Bible says. Of course, that's what you believe, but... How do you know that the words in the Bible are actually from God? Can you prove that? Can you prove that there's a God? And then can you prove that your God actually wrote this Bible? Oh, big questions. After today, okay, today's message, uh, we will become, all right, confidence in the Lord. We will become better equipped and prepared to address that question uh, and provide a reason for the hope that is in you, as it says in 1 Peter. How so? Well, we're going to talk about prophecies in the Bible, how they were verified, uh, and how they were verified by the fact that these prophecies were put in writing before the events actually happened, right? That's how it's got to work in order for a prophecy to be uh, deemed as valid or fulfilled. You have to put it in writing. You ever heard, you know, the saying when someone makes a claim to you, a salesperson or something, right, or, or whatever, a lawyer, and what, what do you always, what should you always say if you want to be shrewd and, and, and wise? Put that in what? Put that in, in writing. Why? Because what's, once it's in writing, it's binding, right? You can't just go back and change it willy-nilly, right? Just so that it suits your convenience. You can't do that. So we have it in writing, all these prophecies. Now imagine that I told you after service today, I was going to give you... 100 statements about an event that's going to happen in the year, uh, 50 years from now, 2066. But I'm not going to show anyone what I prophesied. So that leaves me, what, a nice little loophole, right, so that I can change things. And actually, why should I even write anything, right? I can just wait 50 years, right? Look at the, you know, latest issue of, you know, San Jose Mercury News and just write 100 things about what happened. It's like a Elementary school, you know, newspaper report, current events. That's all I would need to do, right? But that's not prophecy, is it? That's just history, right? You wouldn't be impressed. You shouldn't be impressed. Now, what if I told you instead that I would write down, put it in writing, all of these hundred statements, and then I would give that to you, and not only that, i say, go make that public. Uh-oh, now I'm on the hook, Right? Now everybody's going to be waiting till 2066. All right, let's see. This guy made these predictions. Let's see if he, you know, is right, if he's an actual prophet. And to make things harder, uh, these statements, you know, let's say 50 years later, they actually happen. All right, and everybody's like, oh, well, that's cool. But then you have critics, right? Oh, no, whatever. He's a, a, it was too vague. It was too general. So what if in these hundred statements, I didn't make some sort of lame, generic prophecy like this? In the year 2066, I see that there will be some people on the planet Earth. <laughs> that's, that's my prophecy. That's one of them. That's lame. That's stupid, right? You wouldn't count that as anything special. So what if these 100 statements included highly specific details with locations, 
names of locations, with actual words to be used, even down to mannerisms and actions and times and, and days and specific people and specific events. And then come year 2066, I hit on every single one of those hundred detailed prophecies, not the lame ones, the detailed ones, 100% of them true. By sheer force of reality, one would not be able to ignore the fact that the prophecies that I wrote in detail 50 years ago and made public actually came true. And if someone still didn't believe me in spite of all of that, well, what? That would actually indicate more about that person's mindset, right, than about the facts of reality. The fact of the matter is, I can't do that. I'm sorry to disappoint. You're thinking, oh, I could get some stock tips from Young. I can't do that, all right? I don't have the ability to do that. Neither do you, because if you did, you'd probably be in Bel Air or Beverly Hills or Manhattan, right? (laughs) Or you might be here in Silicon Valley. Who knows, right? But you don't have that power. But the Bible does. And the Bible did it. Unfortunately, there have been lots of people who've tried to imitate the prophecy of the Bible, but they've never actually replicated. They try to imitate, but they can't replicate. I mean, it's easy to make a prophecy, right? Anyone can make a prophecy. The trick is to make a prophecy with details that actually comes true. Now, I don't want to spend too much time talking about this uh, person, but kind of due to the topic of our subject today, I feel uh, kind of the need to at least mention him because he's kind of well-known. When it comes to predicting the future, the person that most people think about today, the name that comes to most minds today, let's see if you guys know, what's the name that I'm thinking about? The person, if you think of someone who can tell the future. Nostradamus, yes, right? That's, he's like the most famous guy, right? He's a man uh, who uh, lived in the 1500s. He's a Frenchman. He was uh, actually like the current day uh, uh, um, pharmacist. That makes a lot of sense as to why he thought that he could prophesy. But anyway, you probably have heard of Nostradamus, or maybe if you haven't, his name is always associated with telling the future, the problem is he actually never did. <laughs> now, I myself, as a young kid, remember watching TV shows like That's Incredible. I don't know if you ever saw that show or Ripley's Believe It or Not. All these shows about these weird things. And I feel like, I, you know, I saw it and go, wow, that's pretty cool. But now that I, you know, as an actual adult that I can think for myself, I, I think that was just an episode filler. They needed material. And they say, oh, hey, this uh, intern found out this thing in Hister and Germany. Or actually, it's not even Germany. It's Germain. But OK, we'll just kind of, all right, put that on, and let's have a night nice show. And I don't know, hundreds of thousands of people saw that little 10-minute segment on Ripley's Believe It or Not. And now, all of a sudden, Nostradamus can tell the future. <laughs> Thank God that didn't happen during the internet time, right? As it turns out, if you actually look at his original prophecies and not the butchered versions that you see flying around um, in cyberspace or even the ones that pranksters, you know, they they actually, just like I was saying before, they actually write uh, these so-called prophecies today um, after the events have occurred and then they put Nostradamus' name on it and then they send it out on the internet and say, look, 
Nostradamus predicted this when they know that they were the ones who made it all up. These are all forgeries. If you actually look at his original prophecies, you'll see that his writings are so general, so nondescript, so a lot of nonsensical, that the predictions of Nostradamus that some people actually think are true, you know, the ones that they think, well, that one's true and that one's true, those are actually somewhat useless as evidence to prove any ability to foreknow the future because they're just so nondescript in general. It's kind of like what I was saying. I, in 2066, I see people on Earth. Okay, good job. All right, you know, I, I can tell the future. And those are the predictions of Nostradamus that people think are true. The vast majority of his writings have not even been fulfilled or they're just plain wrong. All right. He was just, Nostradamus was just a false prophet who knew how to write things in a style that made him sound prophetic. All right. Uh, Nostradamus is not the only one. People in modern times still make prophecies and predictions. A pretty recent example was Harold Camping. You guys remember him? So the man, just to jog your memory, he said that Jesus would return. Write this down, guys. Very important. May 21st, 2011. Oh, that's five years ago. Okay, Mr. Camping. Uh, he said the world was going to end. Uh, do you guys remember that? You guys may have remembered if you were driving on the 101. You may have seen even billboards. He actually the money that people would send to him because they're like, oh my gosh, we're all going to die in like two months. What's the point of having all this money in my bank account? Let's give it to Mr. Camping. And with some of that money, he bought all these billboards. And, you know, at least he was sincere, I guess. <laughs> well, he was a fraud. And, and there's two, just two main ways to think about this. Number one, I don't know if you know this, but very important. The Bible, if you're going to be a follower of Jesus, you have to know this, okay? The Bible clearly, explicitly states outright that nobody knows when Jesus will return. Not even Jesus. The only person who knows is the Father, okay? Jesus himself said this. If you would check it out, verify it, look in Mark chapter 13. He says, nobody knows the hour when he, I will return except the Father. So he even kind of in his incarnation separates himself, you know. And, and so if you, if you have a guy he was based here actually, Harold Camping if you have a guy who go, goes off and spouts off that he knows that Jesus is going to return on this day, automatically you should know based on what Jesus himself said, okay because Harold Camping can't know more than Jesus right, that that's not possible so if the Christians would just read their Bibles, they would have known. And they would have saved themselves a lot of heartache. I think he got like five or close to $10 million uh, that people just sent in. You know, it's just a sad, sad thing. We also know that Mr. Camping was a false prophet because of that. But also, so anytime you hear that, you know that, false prophet. But also his prophecies were just plain wrong. Okay? May 21st, 2011 came. What happened? I don't know. Nothing happened, right? So you know what he did? He changed his story. He said, uh, actually, uh, I, I, I did my math wrong, and I uh, forgot to carry the one. And, you know, and he said, actually, it's going to be October 21st. So he just changed the month, I guess, you know, five months later. 2011. Well, October 21st, 2011 came. 
and went, and the world is still here. You know what the sad thing is? Mr. Camping actually did this years before. He did the same exact thing. He actually predicted that the world would end on September 6, 1994. People still, for whatever reason, you know, it's just, and this is why I bring this up and spend extensive time to equip you because there are some crazy claims that are always, that have floated around in the past, they are in the present, and I guarantee you they will come in the future, and you need to be equipped to know this is completely unbiblical. You cannot, by logic, you cannot be a prophet of God if you say uh, you know when Jesus is coming back. So it's pretty easy to tell. The real issue and being able to distinguish a true prophet and a false prophet is, is that the prophecies have to come true, <laughs> all right? And not just 50% of the time. I mean, come on. Even if it's 50%, it's still just 50%, not 70%, not even 90%. 100% of the time. Well, how is that even possible? Again, like we said, the Bible did it. So why go to these fortune tellers? Why go to these astrologers? Uh, Frank was telling me about this one. What was her name? The, that on TV, the... Cleo. I don't even know what that is, but whatever. I guess it's the modern-day version of Nostradamus, right? Why go to those things when you have the Bible for free? 100% right all the time. Obviously, this is quite remarkable that we have something where prophecies are given, and it's correct 100% of the time. In fact, arguably the most compelling evidence that demonstrates that the Bible is actually from God and not from people, right, that's our original question, is this unprecedented and heretofore unequaled, unrivaled ability to predict the future. Naming details, locations. Now, interestingly, this is very, uh, I didn't know this, okay? I didn't know this. I'm not a big... um, world religion scholar, but as I was preparing, I learned that prophecies with details are all over the Bible, right? I knew that. But prophecies with details are actually absent from all the other major religious texts of the world. Huh. Right? The Book of Mormon doesn't have them. The Islam Quran doesn't have these types of specific prophecies. The Hindu Vedas, they don't have them just a set of rules, how to live, but it doesn't actually talk about prophecy, specific ones. Buddhist writings don't have them. So all of these major religious texts from around the world that claim to be from God, they themselves say this is a revelation from God, these are words from God, but when it comes to detailed prophecies that would require some sort of divine supernatural knowledge, the Bible is the only one. The Bible did not come out of mere human beings like you and me who have limited human knowledge, you know, knowledge limited by time and space. Rather, the Bible is actually given to us by a supernatural being who stands over and works within and stands outside of time and has a perspective and has knowledge and has the power to accomplish what he wants to accomplish in history. And this goes far beyond any natural human capabilities. None of the other texts of the world religions do this. 
This is how you can know that the words of the Bible were inspired by a supernatural God and not by some guy in his cellar giggling to himself. <laughs> you know, all these people, I'm going to fool all these people. It's just not possible because of all these fulfilled prophecies. In Isaiah 46, 9 through 10, God says this. I am God. There is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Amen? Declaring the end from the beginning. He declared the end from the beginning. How can you declare the end from the beginning unless you already know what the end is? Do you know what the end is? If you didn't have the Bible, would you know the end? No. If you tried as hard as you could and sat there and did drugs and whatever and tried to figure out some way what the end is, would you be able to know? You may come up with some crazy ideas, but you wouldn't be able to know. I dare you to write it down, right? Like God did. God declared it, the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things that are not yet done. Saying, my counsel, my words, my wisdom, okay, that shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose. The prophecies, the fulfilled prophecies, okay, that God gave, they both confirm and they carry out the purposes that we see in the Bible, that they are indeed supernatural, not of human hands. All right. So, how many prophecies? This is point number two. Let me just make sure you understand point number one. Nod your head if you do. Okay, good. Do you feel better now that you know point number one? Yeah? Okay, good. More equipped, more confident, right? If someone says, how do you know? So how many prophecies are we talking about here in the Bible? This is point number two. The filled, fulfilled prophecies about the Messiah. Uh, can you guess? Just throw a number out there. Can you guess how many prophecies and references there are in the Old Testament about the Messiah? Everybody's kind of scared to guess. I get it. You may say, um, how many prophecies in the Old Testament are there about the Messiah? Yes. <laughs> Good guess. <laughs> so if you thought like, wow, you know, if I could write 100 about an event 50 years from now, that, that's impressive. How about 300, try th over 300 prophecies and, and references to the Messiah. And that's just, that's just the messianic prophecies. That's not even talking about the prophecies about like kingdoms coming and all the other prophecies that have applied to other people, okay? That's just the messianic prophecies about the Messiah. If you actually count up all the other types of prophecies in the entire Bible, I did not do that, okay? I didn't have that much time. <laughs> Most scholars come to a number around 2,000 prophecies, okay? Around 2,000 in both Old and New Testament, 2,000 prophecies. But again, we're talking today about the messianic prophecies, and that's in the Old Testament, of course, right? It has to be in the Old Testament. Can't write a prophecy after the fact, right? 300, over 300. So we're not obviously going to look at all of them today, but we will like look at some of the big ones, the big messianic ones. And so that's why I have this, uh, the whiteboard. You guys know I love the whiteboard. It just helps to have a visual of what we're ta talking about, um, kind of in theory. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a timeline. All right. Um, here's the beginning. 
Here's, well, let me say uh, Genesis 1, the beginning of history. Here's our timeline. And if you know geometry, I need to have an arrow here, right? <laughs> because that means infinite. This is a beginning point. Now, if we're talking about God's existence, then we're talking arrow this way. But we're not talking about that right now. Okay, so um, we're going to say, we're going to mark this as Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Okay? That's Jesus being born. And, of course, we know uh, that's around 0 A.D., Let's go over just a few of the prophecies. <clears throat> From the very beginning in Genesis, when Adam and Eve fall, we have a prophecy that the Messiah will come from the seed, this is interesting, the seed of a woman. Now, if you know the Bible, when it talks about seed, it's always talking about the man, right? The seed of a woman, not a man. Well, that's talking about the virgin birth. And that the Messiah will be bruised on the heel by Satan. That's the crucifixion. And the Messiah will rule over Satan. That's the resurrection. The Messiah will conquer, rule over Satan. That's the resurrection. And here's the prophecy in Genesis uh, chapter 3, verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is talking to uh, the serpent. You and the woman, between your seed, the serpent seed, and her seed. Not his seed, not Adam's seed, Eve's seed. He, right, the, the seed of the woman, shall bruise you, the serpent, on the head, and you, the serpent, shall bruise him on the heel. This was written 1,700 years before Jesus was even born. That's close to 2,000 years before. Right? So we'll put, uh, we'll put that here. We have Genesis. I guess I should write it bigger. Three, and this happened, eh, we'll just say 1700 B.C. Another one. Listen to this uh, psalm. It's the 22nd psalm. Here are the words of the 22nd psalm. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is in psalm. Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? But I am a worm, not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They mock him, saying, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. Side note, this is a crucifixion, right? I hope you can see the crucifixion here. It's pretty obvious. But you know that you know, people might say, well, you know, that's easy to do, right? You can say that he crucified, a lot of people were crucified. Actually, no. Most scholars agree that the method of execution that was put into effect on Jesus wasn't actually even invented until 
the earliest dates are 500 BC. Okay. Do you know when the psalm was written? 500 years before that. So psalm, get this, is prophesying about a form of execution that hasn't even that doesn't even exist and won't until 500 years later, because Psalm 22 was written in about 1040 BC about the resurrection, I mean about the crucifixion. Crucifixion wasn't actually invented, most scholars would say, the earliest. Okay, there are other dates that are around here. I'm just going to, you know, for the benefit of that, the earliest here. 500 years before the crucifixion was invented, it prophesied the crucifixion. And it prophesied that the Messiah would die by crucifixion, would be pierced by hands and feet, encircled by evildoers. <coughs> they stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing they cast lots. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you, Lord. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Now we're getting into what? Kind of the resurrection, right? All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow. All who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to what? The coming generations. This prophecy must be told to all the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people, what? Yet unborn. In other words, keep telling this in the future to people who are not, not even born yet, this prophecy that has, wasn't happened yet, but since then has, that he has, verse 31, done it. 1,040, 50 years before the birth of Jesus. And as you know from John chapter 19, in about 30 AD, right, 1,080 years after Psalm 22, what we just read, we have this account, Jesus, they took his garments and they made four parts, uh, each part to a soldier and also his tunic, but the tunic was all one piece. So instead of tearing that, they said, let's not tear it. Instead, let's cast lots to see who will get this nice tunic. It says right there, they divide my garments among them and for my clothing, they cast lots. 1,000 over 1,000 years before Another one, he would be born in Bethlehem, the Messiah. The prophet Micah, he said this, that there would be a prophecy in five, Micah 5.2, there's a prophecy that reveals that Bethlehem would be the birthplace of the Messiah. Micah wrote 750 years. He predicted where the Messiah was going to be born. 750 years before it actually happened. The next one, the Messiah is going to come from the line of Jesse, okay? And even more specific than that, you know how many sons Jesse had? He had eight sons. So you might be thinking, well, you know, that's, I mean, come on. He's picking one guy, and then he has eight sons. And out of those eight sons, he picks David. And so this is all prophesied, things yet undone. And in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, we read this. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, 
That's just the Bible's way of saying he's, he's descended from Jesse. And a branch from Jesse, from his roots, shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. Sounds like Jesus. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And in other words, the whole world's going to be turned upside down. Power shall be dispersed. It's, it's, it's you know, uh, creation is going to be restored. The order with which, you know, Adam and Eve messed up, it's all going to be redeemed. And it says, verse 9, and a little child shall lead them. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a banner for the peoples of him, all the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. Another prophecy about the Messiah. Chapter 11, Isaiah, which was written about 700 B.C. Isaiah. I hope you're feeling more and more equipped as we go along, right? He was to enter the next one. Uh, we're almost done. Enter Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, we have, what, five here? So we have 295 to go. 500 years before the birth of Jesus, we have this prophecy in Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation. He is lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Does that ring a bell? But do you know what? Zechariah was written 500 years before Christ and 500 and change before this actually happened, right? His triumphal entry, right, into Jerusalem. So what are we talking? Zechariah, right? 500 years before, he's talking not just about any guy riding a donkey. He's talking about the Messiah, of whom the people are going to say, behold, here's the king. That guy is going to ride in on a donkey. Why would you have a king ride a donkey? You're going to have him ride like a big black stallion, right? Or a chariot drawn by a thousand beastly, you know, whatever. But a donkey? You're going to, that's your prophecy, Zechariah? <laughs> All right, whatever you say, I guess we'll wait 500 years. Well, we know what happened. Luke 19. As he was drawing near, uh, they, threw their, they threw their own clothes on the colt, and they set Jesus on the colt. And all the people, the whole multitude, began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Zechariah, by the Spirit of God, by the knowledge given to him, was able to prophesy this 500 years before. Our second to last one today. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. In the same book of Zechariah, we see this. Zechariah, he, he did pretty good. Then I said to them, if it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. So they weighed out for uh, my wages 30 pieces of silver. So I took the 30 pieces of silver, and I threw them, where? Into the house of the Lord. For what? For the potter. Okay. Uh, we're, okay, I... The fulfillment, again, Zechariah, 500 years before, the fulfillment of this occurred right before Jesus' crucifixion. Matthew 26, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? We all know, right? Judas is asking the priest, and they counted out to him, what? 30 pieces of silver. 
And Judas betrayed Jesus Christ. He tried to give the money back to the chief priests and elders, but they wouldn't take it because it's like blood money, right? So he what? He threw down the pieces of silver where? In the house of the Lord, in the temple, and departed. Now the chief priests are looking at the silver, and you touch it, oh, you touch it, right? And they said, it's not lawful for us to put this back into the treasury because it's blood money. So they consulted together, and instead they bought a potter's field to, buy, to bury strangers in, Matthew 27. All over the Bible, all throughout the Old Testament, we have prophecy after prophecy. These are just a few. Let me read the last one for us today that we're going to look at. It may be quite possibly the most famous, and so that's why I want to read it for you. But it's also the most, it's famous because it's very significant. All right, so let me um, read that for you. It's Isaiah 53, and um, I would encourage you to go there so that you can see it with your own eyes. All right? Now remember, when was Isaiah written, guys? Say it out loud. 700 years before Jesus was born. Good, you're paying attention. Isaiah 53, he wrote this 700 years before the Messiah was born. Who has believed that he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The arm of the Lord, the Messiah. He grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. Now, where did Jesus, he was born in Bethlehem. He had to flee to Egypt, and then he kind of grew up in Nazareth. Dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. There was nothing externally spectacular or attractive about him necessarily. No beauty that we should desire him. He was actually despised, rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. We thought he's cursed, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for your iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, you are healed. I am healed. We are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of all of us. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that's before its shears is silent, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and for his generation who considered that he must have been cut off, he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Hmm. Details. Remember the rich man who basically gave his tomb to Jesus? Details. Although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. He shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the, hand of the, the, will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. 
out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall, by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He poured out his soul to death, was numbered with the transgressions, yet he bore the sin of many, making intercession for the transgressors. How many times did that theme pop up? He didn't do anything wrong, but he was punished as someone who did wrong. Why? To bear what? The iniquity, the transgression of others. This was written, this would not be remarkable if it were written 100 years after Jesus. But it is remarkable because it was written seven hundred, almost a thousand years, seven centuries before Jesus was born. These are just eight, <laughs> eight prophecies out of 300 plus. The Messiah has been foretold to us now for almost, you know, add 2,000, right? 3,700 years. God has told us, we know that this is going to happen. The Messiah is coming, and guess what? He has come. He has come, amen? He has come. And as Isaiah said, he has been crucified, and he has been resurrected. He will bruise the head of the serpent. Point number three. There's one little uh, thing that um, I learned. You might say, well, this could all just be coincidence that all these prophecies culminated in one man. But uh, really quick, uh, I've, I've learned, you know, I've, I've read that there are mathematicians who've actually gone through this, the time and the labor of trying to figure out what would be the actual probability of just eight of these prophecies randomly being fulfilled in one person. And they said that's 10, 1 in 10 to the 17th power, 17 zeros. What is that? They can't even, well, they said, if you take a silver dollar, that many silver dollars, okay, about that big, laid them two feet deep, stack them two feet deep, you could cover the entire state of Texas. The entire state of Texas, two feet deep. You mark one, shuffle it all up, Get a blind person or blindfold him and get him to take, he only gets one shot. And that would be kind of the odds that he could pick the one. That's the odds that this would happen randomly in one person. But that's just eight. They only were able to calculate it for eight prophecies, not for over 300. And so going back to our passage today in Luke 24, a little further down. <clears throat> verse 27, right? Beginning with Moses. Moses is here. Moses wrote Genesis. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets. All the prophets here, right? Micah, Zechariah, Isaiah. He interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things, what? Concerning himself. 
and then go to verse 44. Then he spoke to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, Psalm 22, Psalm 41, it's all in there. Then he opened, they must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. <laughs> Doesn't this sound just like beginning from Jerusalem? You are witnesses of these things. Brothers and sisters, I hope that, like it says in verse 45, I hope your mind, you feel like your minds have been opened to the scriptures. If so... Verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high, which has happened. It's the Holy Spirit that comes upon the church. We live in that period now. And then he went, he led them out to Bethany, lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, their, their company. He was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and continually in the temple, blessing God. Why? Because this shows us that everything in the Bible is true. And not only is it true, it's from God. And not only that, but what if everything in the Bible is from God? What if it said, you're going to all just die no matter what? Oh, that's not a reason to be, like it says in, verse, you know, in Luke 24, to have joy and bless God, right? What is he actually saying? I've spent the bulk of our time today talking about the fact that you can verify logically that this comes from a supernatural source. But I haven't really, I mean, we kind of did at the end. What is the content? The content is the good news. And you can trust that the good news is true. Always be prepared to give a defense for the reason for your faith. I hope today you feel a little, little more equipped. And I hope as you think about the past six sermons before this, about the transmission of the scriptures, the reliability of the New Testament and the Old Testament. And if you don't, hey, we have it on, on, online. Go to the website. Listen, learn, and be equipped. Because reality is here. The Messiah is here. And the implications are great and many. And I want to focus on one as we close today. Well, I guess two. If Jesus... Knowing who he is, he could do this. If he came face to face to you right now and asked, do you believe everything about me? What would you say? Do you know what Jesus would say? Then live it. If you believe it, live it. If anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments and he will abide in my word. Do you believe that the word is true? Does this help equip you to know logically why it's true? You don't just believe it because your grandfather believed it and then pass it on to your dad and you believe it. You believe it because it's true. You have a reason. You have been prepared to give a defense. 
And if you know it to be true, then let's live it. And let's live it together. And let's enjoy this adventure of being in God's word together and sharing that with others who don't yet know the good news, the true good news. That starts next week. For more on that, let's pray. Father, we thank you for the testimony of your word. We thank you that you gave us all these words. You put it in writing. You didn't tell us you're going to hide it away. You're going to give us prophecies, but you're going to hide it away and reveal it after everything happens. You put yourself on the line. You said, I'm going to, this is what's going to happen centuries before it actually happened. But he, I mean, that's important, but it's not only the reliability of your truth, Lord, is, is important, but then what's the content of what, what are you actually saying? What is your truth actually then saying? Your truth is saying that we who have iniquity, we who are dead in our sin, we who have been going astray, led by our own deceitful hearts, we have been healed by the stripes of the Messiah. This is the good news. And if we truly believe that we are healed by Jesus, then that also includes the fact that we are healed to live for Jesus. No longer chained by our sin, but broken free to live and to run and run fast and run long and run with perseverance and run despite persecution and suffering. Run with Jesus, for Jesus, in Jesus. Take some time right now to just um, meditate, just talk to Jesus right now and let him talk to you.